Welcome to the Rhythm Changes Podcast, a home for creative, improvising, local music people. I'm your host and the founder of Rhythm Changes, Will Chernoff. This conversation is about three big moves. I've had some moves in my life. Maybe you have too. Today, you can listen to an expert musician who's had to navigate these kind of moves and he tells such candid stories about it while always having good words to say about his collaborators. I really enjoyed this conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it too. Please enjoy. Our guest today has been an outstanding saxophonist in BC since 2008. And on his way here, he had to make three big moves in his career. First, he went to Montreal and graduated from McGill University with a master's in music. Second, he went to London and worked as a recording and performing musician. And third, he came to BC to teach at Capilano University, where he is an academic coordinator of the Jazz Studies program. While doing that, he has released three albums as a leader with Seller. They are called Blow Up, Straight Up, and New York Afternoon. And recently he recorded a fourth. I was lucky to hear him record live at Frankie's with Chris Jestrin on piano, Conrad Good on bass, and Jesse Cahill on drums. You can find him on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Bandcamp under his own name. And you can stream his music everywhere. We welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast, Steve Caldestad. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm just in summer mode and my kids are home. And so I, I just told them, don't bother me for an hour. I'm talking to Will. <laughs> so I'm really happy to be here. Oh, I really appreciate it. Before we get into those three moves, can you walk us through both nights of your gig and live recording dates at Frankie's? Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, uh, well, the, um, the whole, if you don't mind me telling you the whole sort of purpose of the recording... Um, and what it meant to me, where we were coming from, as far as sort of artistic vision, if you would, um, is we were lucky enough that that pretty much that group that, that you caught, Conrad Good and, and Chris Gestrin and Jesse and, and myself, we were fortunate enough to play, I guess if I had to average it out, I'd say every three months during the pandemic. There were some closures, you know, in some longer periods, and then maybe, uh, you know, a couple of them came two months apart. But basically, if I had to spread it out, I was lucky enough to just see that group intermittently. And um, and I did know when that was happening that elsewhere in the world, not everyone was so lucky that they were able to sort of just check in and have the odd gig. And so the last time I played with that quartet, uh, the bartender at Frankie's, um, Ryland said, uh, oh, man, that was amazing. Why didn't you guys take? I wish you were recording tonight. And then I just sort of had this idea the idea was really to capture the joy and and just the urgency of how how grateful we were to be able to play live and and to and I do mean live because the live streams were fun too but to actually play for people during the pandemic. And so the first night um I'll tell you what I wanted from the recording and it sort of almost sort of surprised Jesse on the drums um as I said I don't want to rehearse new tunes I don't want to present an oeuvre of like here's what I've been doing during the pandemic because I'll tell you what I've been doing during the pandemic and that is a heck of a lot of uh, coordinating with the jazz program so um 
you know, I'd been shedding and getting in shape for the gig, but I really just wanted to achieve that feeling of not knowing how many times the, the, the intro is going to be before you move on and, and not knowing how the music's going to sound and not having rehearsed. I really just wanted to improvise. And so I actually chose material that, um, you know, and we'll get into the Montreal days, but they, I wanted to choose material I've been playing for absolute eons so we could get straight to that place of listening to each other and communicating and really sharing that energy. So the first night was truly sort of, um, new and fresh in that I was just sort of dropping these tunes on these guys saying, here's what we're going to do. I don't know what the ending is going to be. I don't want to, you know, I just don't want to preordain how any of this is going to go. And having Chris Gestrin on piano, I'm sure you know, just from, from being a fan of his music as I am, is he can do almost anything. I mean, I would, I, I say almost, but there's nothing I, I haven't heard. I, I believe he could do any kind of music. And I do mean any genre, so I love that element of not knowing how the music was going to sound. So Friday was, in my opinion, almost more fun. And then Saturday, you took away that surprise element. And then we were just able to be a little tighter. And then I had people say, oh, yeah, Saturday, there's definitely a recording there. Saturday night had a great energy. But I, I did like that feeling on the first night of a bit of trepidation and, and not knowing what was going on. And I sort of thrive on that. I didn't want it to be too predictable. Hope that helps a little bit. That's that's how I was feeling. I was sort of bubbling over with excitement of just the unknown and and the gratitude of playing live. That's exactly why I enjoyed that Friday night so much. I missed the Saturday, but I definitely agree with you on the Friday. You could feel the sort of ah, I don't really know what, especially at the end of the tunes. And I I um I know it was funny. Like it's it's up to me to sort of relay to my band what what I'm going for. And I think they got it. And I think Jesse was sort of surprised. I looked over at him and he's sort of like, you know, aren't we going to chop and tail these tunes? And I, no, 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 that's, this is exactly like, I need us to be basically reaching out to each other. Eye contact. Like that's really what was, I was in it for that. I was in it for that feeling of um, possibly screwing up the endings, but I just didn't want anything to be set. I really didn't want it to be sort of, um, out of the box like that you know and you absolutely delivered and I'm oh thanks well to hearing thanks. the results of that now an interesting place uh to start might be actually your time in regina before the first big move which was from there to montreal you weren't born in regina so what brought you and your family there okay yeah that's um that's a cool story in that my dad was a bit of, a bit of an adventurer in that he was happy to take any transfer offered him with, um, he was working for a transportation company and um, it usually meant career advancement if you don't mind changing provinces. And so he was, he was quite happy to, um, to try new things. And even at one point we moved up to Larange, Saskatchewan to, um, to buy a fishing camp and to do something completely different. He left the transport industry for a bit. Um, so when we were heading to Regina and I was, I think I was mid grade five or perhaps it was grade six. And my mom said, Oh, I've heard about this Regina Lions band. They're a really good marching band and you're going to join. Like she just didn't ask me if I wanted to join. She just said, Oh, you're going to be in this band that's famous. Um, and what would you like to play? And I remember being really into Hall and Oates and Hugh Lewis and the news and wham. And, and what is the common denominator with all that music was saxophone. It really was like every in the eighties, every song had a sax solo. So I just knew it was going to be sax. And my mom 
was and my mom and dad were laughing because every instrument was like $12 a month to rent and sax was 26. And so they thought, ah, oh, I had to choose the expensive one. So I joined this lion's band and, um, and funnily enough, my wife joined on the same day. Um, we weren't married then because, you know, I was 10 and she was eight, but, um, so funny how these things work, but so that was Regina. I was in this Lions band, and and I was in the band with Kelly Jefferson, who is the uh, those jazz fans listening might know him as an incredible saxophonist uh, based in Toronto. And um, so Kelly was a little bit older, and he was in the band, and and there were a lot of really great musicians. Ted Warren is a drummer who who was a little older, but I knew he was a, an alum of uh, of the band. So there I was. Um, in Regina, loving the jazz band, played a bit of bass in one of the stage bands and and um, mostly sax and uh, alto and tenor. And and there were some people in Regina that were a couple years older than me. Um, there was Tilden Webb and there was um, you know, Maury Lafoy. And there were some people that I knew from my high school and was lucky enough to play with. And they went to McGill. And so they sort of led the way. They went in the same year as Kelly, two years ahead of me. And um, I went to the Music Fest Canada in Calgary, and I remember seeing McGill's big band, and Denzel Sinclair was singing, and it was just a nutso band. It was so good and blew us all away. So I just knew two years from now, I'll be going to Montreal. There was no choice. There was only one degree in, in the country at that time, as far as I know, in jazz performance. And so McGill was a real pull for a lot of us at that point. This was 1990. So Regina, I really am grateful for the the foundations I got in that marching band because it was a concert band and a marching band and and jazz band. And of course, you could join different jazz bands. That's why I played bass, so I could be in two bands. And it was really immersive. It was it was what we see in the really good high school programs now, but I had that from a community band, um, you know. So that that was the Regina story. I don't know if that gives you enough, paints enough of a picture, but it was a pretty musical city. At your gig here on Friday night when I heard you, I was lucky to hear you mention a teacher you had at McGill who I never got to meet. So tell me about the late Jan Yarchuk. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, when I moved to McGill in 1990, um, it, it was, I'll just preface this by saying it was kind of a peculiar time because in 1990, I didn't arrive at McGill and join a bunch of other 18 or 19 year olds. There was this time in Canadian history where McGill was this magnet and it pulled all sorts of people who had done these college programs. They were at Grant McEwen for two years first, or maybe they were at York University. John Stetch was there and I think Denzel had gone to York, if I have that right. Um, but almost everyone in my first year had been elsewhere. Christine Jensen joined with me, but she came from Malaspina, which is now called Vancouver Island University. and. You later realized, oh, this wasn't a normal time to arrive at university. This was kind of everyone's third or fourth year, but they were starting at the beginning. So that's why it was sort of turbocharged. So when I arrived, I was really drawn to bebop, or I guess almost post-bop in the sense that John Coltrane in 1956 to 58 was it. That was that was um, the epitome of what we were going for. And then uh, that would have been represented by Kevin Dean and Andre White and and Yanis Steprens and some great players in Montreal at that time. And then this this fellow, this uh, amazing man, um, I I got to know Yan in my third year, I believe it was, and he sort of represented the Keith Jarrett and the European jazz and the sort of new the post bebop thing. And and he really it. I found out later had been in Boston in the seventies at Berkeley 
early eighties and, um, and represented basically, um, you know, modern jazz as we were referring it to it then, um, you know, basically post post bop and post modal. And, um, you know, he really expanded a lot of our horizons because we were really stuck in the mid fifties. And, you know, by the time I was done at McGill, I was, uh, for the first time when I did my undergrad, I was into late train, you know, maybe to 64 love Supreme and that sort of thing. But I, I hadn't really had my mind opened as much as Yan would open it. And then when I redid, uh, well, when I went back to McGill again and from 98 to, to 2000, Yan was really my connection. He was my advisor for my master's. And I met with him every week and I bought a piano and I was slaving away trying to work on these compositions at home. And every week I was kind of dreading seeing Jan because I thought, oh, I don't have anything together and he's so heavy. But even if I went to, to Jan with one little tiny idea, he would just... He wouldn't, he'd be so unjudgmental. He might make a little joke about, you know, is this it? Is this all you have? But he would turn all my ideas into these bigger things without doing the work for me. He was just showing me, you just need a little germ. You just need a little nugget and we'll turn this into something. So don't fear the process. Just, just start, just do something. And so, um, seeing him every week for my masters, um, I just, I don't know. I, he just, I'm so grateful. I got to spend that time with him because he was such a funny, uh, generous, um, just absolutely, you know, larger than life in a sense. Like his character was just boundless, um, in this sort of diminutive size. You know, he was just this little guy, um, that spoke in this heavy Polish accent and, uh, and every little, every little sort of English, every expression that came out sort of half Polish, half English sort of, you know, clumsy English, they, they were just everything you wanted to write them down because they were all nuggets. Um, and so anyone that went to McGill and learned from Jan, we all sort of uh, feel the same way. We're just really grateful we got to spend that time with him. Speaking of anyone else who went to McGill, also at the gig, you mentioned that you have a near 30-year collaborator in your band. So talk about playing with Jesse Cahill over the years. Okay, yeah. Um, Jesse, if I had to put a, a date on it, I think he arrived in 93. So I was two years in, two, two, three years into my undergrad. So he was a little younger. And we played together a lot. He had um, he had long hair and a ponytail, um, if you can imagine, and came from Victoria. And I know he pretty much had your hair, too. Um, and he was kind of into, I don't know what... Jesse, he always gets into things. He goes through these sort of chapters of really being into this and then really being into that and sort of mastering these things. Um, and so he was just such an interesting guy and um, and became a, a good friend. And we hung out a lot uh, when we started spending summers in Montreal. You know, there was a lot of great hangs and just sessions, just playing a ton. And I think that, um, you know, I don't want to, tell Jesse's story here, but um, I think Andre White was a really big um, mentor for for Jesse from a musical point of view. Uh, Andre's drumming that we were, you know, lucky enough to, to hear a lot in the 90s. I think that had a big influence on all of us. Um, but Jesse, um, I, I, I mean, I, that's my take on it is I, I heard Jesse take a lot from Andre's uh, live playing that and you know, and it's this thing we talk about, um, sometimes when we're encouraging students to go to live gigs is that Jesse would go to the stage and, and ask questions. He was one of those people that would go up to Andre White and say, Hey man, uh, you know, what's, that was cool. Uh, 
can I buy you a drink or, you know, just that connecting with the, uh, with the elders, you know? Um, and so I started playing just with Jesse at that time. And I will say, I'm, um, you know, I moved to England in 2000. Um, and I really missed Jesse's drumming. I, it was, I it might sound trite. It might sound like I'm, I'm being silly, but I actually think that was maybe musically the thing I missed most was, um, you know, a, a thing represented by drummers that knew the tradition, but weren't trying to just imitate a certain thing and, and just that openness, but yet still swinging. So if I think of drummers, like, and I'm only going to name drummers I've played with a lot, there's plenty of great drummers, but I, I played a lot with Dave Lang um, in Montreal and with, with Jesse. And I really missed that, that style when I was in the UK, although I played with amazing musicians over there too, but I was sure happy to come back and continue playing with Jesse. And when I lived in England, I continued to play with Jesse when I'd visit uh, the West coast. And, uh, and then when I moved here, he's my guy. I always call Jesse, you know, almost build the gig around him. Oh, Jesse can't make that weekend. How about the next weekend, you know, and then, and then build the band, but it's, I don't know, Will, but I don't know if you feel the same way, but when you're putting together a gig, when you're fortunate enough to be given the chance to put a, a, a gig together, it really depends that that first call is important because, you know, once I have Jesse, then the gig can go a couple of ways. But if I can't get Jesse and I'm playing with someone else, now I'm, of course, Vancouver is lucky to have many good drummers, but you sort of build the band around an idea and after you have Jesse, then you're thinking, I even asked Jesse, hey, which bass players are you enjoying hooking up with lately? So then you get the bass player and then you add that sauce, which is that catalyst, whether that be guitar or, or piano. So, yeah, I just I love Jesse's musicianship and drumming and and uh, we've been friends. I guess it's coming on 30 years. That's so sweet. That's so great to hear about it. Before we get to London also in the 90s, you went to New York to study with Lee Konitz. So what was that like? I'll tell you what that was like was when I, um, okay, I finished in Montreal in September. Well, I graduated July 94. And then Toronto was the big city. Okay, Montreal was great. I enjoyed it. But let's move up in the world and move to Toronto. Well, when I moved to Toronto that fall, I realized it wasn't really moving up in the world. It was just selecting something very different than Montreal. And Toronto is a great city and, you know, as, as is Montreal. But um, I, um, yeah, I, I took some lessons with Kirk there and, um, and those were great. Uh, but I was a little bit out of town. I was in the beaches area and, um, uh, I just missed Montreal. I'm going to be honest. And that's not a slight, uh, it's not to put Toronto down, but I really missed Montreal. So I went back. Um, I did a cruise ship briefly and then moved back to Montreal and I just got playing around, continued to play with Jesse and, and some people that were still at McGill. And then, um, so I guess all the way from 94 to 98, I was just living my life and playing and teaching at Lower Canada College, which is uh, a private, private school. Um, funnily, funnily enough, Patrick Watson was there at that time. And I remember him being a, a young piano player. And, and so I had a teaching gig and I was just playing. And then I would always apply for these Canada council grants and get the letter. Like your, your application was really great. We, it's not that it wasn't great. We just don't have the money at this time. And you think, oh man, not the disappointing rejection letter. And then I uh, applied for, a. uh, Conseil des Arts et des Lettres, the, basically the Quebec Council of Arts and Letters. And I got, I, I got a smallish grant, um, but big enough to move to New York. So I moved to New York in 97 
And I took some lessons with Lee Konitz, and I also took one lesson with Mark Turner. But I feel like the whole trip was a lesson with Mark Turner because every Tuesday that Kurt's band would play at Smalls, I was there. Every Tuesday I went to Smalls. I mean, there were some times when, you know, the odd Tuesday that Kurt wasn't there. But when Mark couldn't do it, there was Josh Redmond some nights. Chris Potter would sub. And um, and it was just this residency with um, Ben Street and Jeff Ballard and, and Mark Turner and sometimes um, Myron uh, Walden would sit in on, um, on Alto. And um, so that's what I was doing in New York. And then that was unbelievable. I mean, I, I remember uh, at one point buying a Mark VI tenor uh, in Montreal when I was visiting. And I bought it at a good price and then gave it to our friend, uh, the dearly departed Terry Dean. I said, overhaul this horn, sell this horn in New York. I just need to make more money to stay here longer. So I was just living on a shoestring and, and I sold that horn and it bought me another month and a half um, in New York. And then I thought, well, I can't legally be in New York anymore now that I'm out of grant money. Um, I'll go back to Montreal and do a master's. So that's that's sort of how that return in 98 to do the master's came about, is that New York was incredible for one year, just shy of one year. Seeing Kurt Rosenwinkel so many times. I remember my um, really good friend, Roland Schneider, um, who is a great drummer in Berlin. He said, well, why are you going to see Kurt again? Like, I mean, Kurt's great, but like, really? Every week? And I just said you know, I just have to catch this. And now I realize, yes, it was a great idea because that will never happen again. Now Kurt's doing other things and all those guys have become superstars. And honestly, it was just, uh, it was school. And I bootlegged some nights and I hope I can find those tapes somewhere. But yeah, that was amazing. So then I just returned to Montreal to spend those two years with Jan Yarchik. And uh, I don't regret any of that. But it was pretty cool taking those lessons with Lee. I went to Lee's place. And I just had his address written down and no one had phones then. I just had to figure out where that was. Luckily, I mean, New York's a grid system. So I walk up to this place and I see these buzzers and it says L. Konitz. But I noticed right under L. Konitz, it said Bernstein. And I knew that Peter Bernstein lived near, I guess I knew that he lived near Lee. I actually went to McGill with John, with uh, Peter's brother, John. So I knew of Peter um, all the way back in 1990. But um I'm at the buzzer going, wow, that's crazy. Like Peter Bernstein lives in Lee Konitz's building. Um, and so I, I went up and I remember having my saxophone on my, on my back and meeting Lee. And uh, I'd actually been to Birdland to see him play uh, with Peggy Stern and some, some other people and introduced him and said, oh, well, yeah, thanks. Cause we'd made the connection on the phone, but it was hard to catch Lee because he lived in Germany and had this apartment in New York. So you had to catch him when he was in town and, of course, there weren't really cell phones, so you leave a message on a answer machine. So anyway, I go up to his place, and I had my saxophone, and his whole walls were lined with, like, kids' art, his grandkids, I guess, and I'm kind of bumping into the 3D collage art with my sax, and he's like, hey, watch it, watch it. And um, and so the first lesson was such a trip because he was playing his alto next to me, and we were playing I'll Remember April, and we were playing together, but I remember being freaked out by the fact that I was interacting with this sound that I knew. I was interacting with Lee Konitz. We were playing together. And so I lost one. I remember he lost me on the rhythm. He kind of bucked me off because that's the whole thing about Lee post-Tristano is they can start a phrase on any beat and they can end it on any beat. And he did this little hemiola thing and he lost me. And I, 
probably only had to continue on for another minute, but that minute seemed like an eternity. I was like, oh no, I lost one. <laughs> I've lost one. I'm an idiot. Um, so, um, so Lee was cool. And then he, um, he went over the piano that first lesson and was playing some chords and sort of testing my ear training, just saying everything comes from the ear. Um, and I was able to ask him things like, is it true you didn't like Charlie Parker? You know, like questions like that, which, which he was really frank about answering. And basically he, he didn't say he didn't like Charlie Parker, but they were consciously trying to do something else. And he said, uh, I'm sharing, I hope, you know, rest in peace, Lee. I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but he, he did say it quite frankly to me is he said, well, there was a certain glibness to seeing bird. And by glib, he just sort of meant, you know, maybe Bird's heart wasn't in it or there was a showiness. And and in Lee's words, he said, yeah, we'd, we'd see Bird and there was just a certain, we found it at times glib. And then there was something about Lester Young where it just, it just blew me away. And those might not have been Lee's exact words, um, but he basically said the prez was, that was the thing. They wanted to tap into that source. And it's funny because when I listen to Bird, I hear the prez in, in, in Bird and I hear that depth. But to, to if anyone's opinion is valid, it's Lee's. And, and hey, it's very subjective. And that's how we felt at the time. And when you talk about the Tristano gang, it was a movement. It was like a conscious effort to do something else. And, and I really dig that. Um, and so anyway, got to ask him about that. Got to tell him what my favorite albums of his were and, and ask what his were. And it's a kind of fan kind of questions but more importantly i got to play with him and um and this is really hip as he said do you know the hot fives and the hot sevens do you know the louis Ar the, do you know the louis armstrong recordings and i said well yeah you know because i'd learned them in jazz history at mcgill and um he said no but do you do you know them and i said um and admittedly i'll tell you right now is that when i would hear that music up to that point the fact that it was recorded uh, you know, almost a hundred years ago, 90, at least. Um, I only heard that it was old and I heard that it was scratchy and it sounded so far away from what I dug that I knew I was just listening to it because I was supposed to. And I'm just being honest because I mean, luckily this story has a happy ending. And like, I went to pay Lee for that lesson when he was telling me to really check out the hot fives. Cause he said, Oh, I still play along with, with those solos and I sing them. So I went to pay him and I think it was $80 like us. So I get this like scratchy old bills out to pay him 80 bucks. And Oh, I, I might've incriminated myself. I might've told the, the Quebec council that they were costing more than that. <laughs> might've cooked the books there a little bit, but don't, please don't uh, come for me. So I went to give him the $80 and he said, Oh, keep your, I want you to keep that money. Um, go and buy those recordings. And I went to this place, I think it was on Amsterdam Avenue, and I went into this record store and Louis Armstrong section, they just had this four CD box of the Hot Fives and Hot Sevens. And so, you know, back then it was like, I don't know, it came to 60 bucks or something. And so the money went to that. And then I put them on um, Walkman or Discman or whatever. And I listened to those like crazy for two years because Lee told me to. And finally, I stopped hearing the scratchy like the anachronistic sort of recording techniques. And I just heard the music and that I appreciate that because it, I know for my younger students, it takes a long time to train that, that sound. 
out of what you're listening to. So you just hear the music and you don't hear, oh, there's music that sounds like it's super old and scratchy. You, you actually, it doesn't matter that it's scratchy. You hear the music. And so it took a long time, I guess, like a fine whiskey. You know, at first you're like, oh, people drink this and then you can appreciate it. So it's an acquired taste. And I would say that any music from a faraway culture or a faraway time period, it, it takes an, a, a little invitation. It takes an opening. Um, so I just thought that was a neat kind of karmic story is that he wouldn't take my money, went straight to the store. And then I listened with uh, as much intention as you could ever listen to because I trusted why I was, I knew that I wasn't wasting my time diving deep into that music. So that was the, maybe the biggest thing I took from Lee was his generosity and, and his love for, for Louis Armstrong. Cause I think, yeah, okay. These guys talk about Louis and Lester Young, but really like that's where they find all their answers. And, you know, as I get a little bit more mature, I just still listen to that music and try to find more in it. Um, you know, it's pretty crazy how much depth there is there. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of the Lee story. Then I went back to Montreal to do the masters just cause I, I didn't know what else to do. Um, yeah. Okay. So how did you decide to go to London? This is a good story and, um, we've heard it before. Okay. Here I am in, um, 2000, I get the master's. And I had a love interest. I had a, um, a girlfriend at the time and she was an amazing, she is an amazing person. And she was going to do um, her master's at the Courtauld Institute in London. And, you know, without diving too deep into my personal life, uh, it was a little bit early in the relationship to do something as rash as let me follow you to London, but it just seemed like great timing um, and everything lined up. And I sort of, um, that marked 10 years that I'd been in Montreal and I needed to go somewhere. And I got this um, visa that you can get until you're 27, I think until you're actually, until you turn 28 called the working holiday maker for citizens of the Commonwealth. And so I went to the embassy and I applied as a too late, I'm mid 27. And I got this two year visa to move to London without, you know, without any issues whatsoever. And so um, I just had this feeling like London was cool and I wanted to check it out. And I remember uh, one of my friends said, Oh God, London, it's horrible. Why do you want to move there? And I was like, wow. <laughs> okay. Most other people thought that was a really neat idea. And I moved to London, not knowing what I was doing. I sold all my possessions, really lightened my load and, um, and, um, moved over there. And I guess I, I have to credit, um, my girlfriend at the time for the reason that we, that I made that big move. Uh, but I wasn't, I wasn't moving to London just for the relationship, but it was just something that led me there. Um, I guess I'm trying not to put all the, the, um, you know, it wasn't just about the relationship, but it definitely was a catalyst. And right from the moment I got there, I could feel something different in the air. It was just such a different place. And I went um, straight to Ray's Jazz Shop, which was this really fabled, um, really cool jazz store that had been there since the late 50s in Covent Garden. It's sort of between Covent Garden and um, along the sort of Seven Dials area, um, which is a really hip area of London. And... Um, I went right into the store and said, Hey, I'm, uh, you know, 
I'm a jazz musician. What's happening around in town? And they had this sort of listings, this jazz in London listings. And one of the people at the store said, oh, uh, yeah, come to this gig on Saturday night and sit in. And I hope you don't mind me telling you this quirky thing about London. It's a bit of a diversion, but just to illustrate what a strange place England is. And uh, if there's anyone from England listening, I'm saying that with love and respect for the fine country. Um, but um, they had this rule in almost every drinking establishment where you couldn't have more than two people on stage. To get a license to have more than two musicians on stage was through the town councils and the health and safety. It was completely onerous process and would probably result in these people with clipboards coming to your gig going, you're not uh, following all the, <laughs> nope, denied. And so um, this place had to have two people only on stage. So the singer would sing a song and the pianist would play and then the singer would step off stage and the saxophone player would sort of sneak on and play a solo and then have to be off the stage by the time the singer came on. And it sounds like pantomime. It sounds ridiculous, but that's how it was. And so this friend named Paul Pace, who's now involved at Ronnie's, he said, oh, come by. Yeah, it'd be great. You could sit in. So the manager of Ray's Jazz Shop was at the, at the gig and he said, oh, come, come by on Monday. I got a job for you. So I started working at Ray's, um, you know, most days. So you can imagine working right in the center of London at the jazz store. I met so many musicians that would come in and out and I didn't yet know the history of British jazz, but I learned so much so quickly. And, um, all sorts of famous people, you know, went to that store and, and I sold, you know, CDs to also, it's just really cool. It was just like, oh, wow, there's Alan Rickman. I'm selling him a Keith Jarrett CD. And there was all this cool stuff because I knew I was at this really hip place. And a year and a half later, um, that, uh, Ray Smith retired the Ray of Ray's jazz and, that store actually moved to Foyle's Books, which is a famous bookstore. And so I, by that point, Will, I remember actually um, a musician coming to McGill in the 90s and doing a, a workshop and saying, whatever city you move to, you have to give it two years. And I don't know if social media might have accelerated that two years, but he basically said, no, don't make any judgments, give it two years. Well, one and three quarter years in, Ray's Jazz Shop is sort of the situation changing. I'm not going to work there anymore. Boom, started gigging. After no gigs, like nothing, no gigs, um, sitting in and trying, but nothing. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm gigging. And uh, and I was so busy and I'm not, you know, not bragging. I was so busy. It's just such a busy market. And I remember everyone there, Will, saying, oh, it's not like it was. Oh, there was so much work. It's really not like it was. And I was thinking as a North American, oh, it sure a lot busier than we have it over in North America, like so much more work and you're in London. So you're so close to a gig in, um, you know, maybe Copenhagen or you go to Amsterdam and these gigs are so near and they're considered doable where, as you know, here in North America, especially in Canada, you don't exactly grab a gig in Edmonton thinking, Oh, it's, it's just a, it's the next town over, you know, it's a very expensive thing to do. So I was really busy working mostly with two bands and that way, well, there's three or four bands, but Matt Waits, I really uh, have to thank Matt who runs a sextet and the sort of Art Blakey style. And he helped me uh, get a more permanent visa. And I was playing a lot of hard bop with that group. And so that was great. And I was also in this thirties jazz, um, hot jazz band called um, the Pasadena Roof Orchestra. And that was really like some 
Cotton Club Ellington stuff, but also a little bit of thirties British, um, British jazz. And it was like clarinet, tons of clarinet and it paid my rent. So I'm really grateful for, um, and I met a lot of great guys in that band guys and, and, uh, and gals. So, um, I was just gigging up a storm. And then, um, I, I mean, I, I know we all love Kenny Wheeler. He's probably my favorite British musician, British, uh, Canadian, obviously. Um, but I met all sorts of musicians in all veins, you know, all, all styles. And I, I have to say there's an, an incredible, amazing amount of musicians there. And back then it was just a normal cell phone, but you had a phone book in it and I must've had a thousand names in it. And I knew all those people and six or eight months or a year would go by and you wouldn't see someone and you'd get to a gig together and you'd be like, Hey, like, just like you saw them last week. So the number of people I knew, the musicians I knew and could comfortably hang out with and, and week to week was endless. Whereas in Vancouver, you know, we have our group and it's maybe like an incredible amount of musicians and I'm happy to, to be here, but in England, it's sort of infinite. It's crazy. And so close together. So, um, I mean, I'd be scrolling through, uh, you know, you'd scroll through the phone book. There's this joke over there where someone would call me for a gig and they'd say, oh, well, it's in Leeds and it only pays a hundred pounds and you have to get yourself there. And I'd say, oh, I'm, it's kind of tight. I don't think I can do it. Have you called this player? Yeah. Have you called this guy? Yeah. Have you called this guy? Yeah. And you realize they've called 40 people before they've called you <laughs> and you're like, Oh, I see. I guess I know where I am on your list. But the fact is there's so many musicians over there. It's nuts. So um, I might as well tie up the, the, the England story. I worked a lot with Kate Williams, who's a great pianist, um, was in her group and recorded with her. And um, I'd been there for about seven years. And I was always legal. It was on the uh, what we call the uh, indefinite leave to remain, which is like a green card. So... I knew that the next step was I was almost going to get my passport. Um, and then I just, it was time to move back to Canada. All, all roads led back to Canada. And I was about four months, five months away from getting the passport, which is funny now because with Brexit, that passport just became a lot more useless. <laughs> it's just England. Like when at the time I was thinking, Oh man, if I can get this passport, it's like 27 countries. And, um, so, and I'd come so far, I just thought, why don't I stay a little longer? But the pull back to Vancouver was so strong that I just, I bailed and now it worked out, <laughs> you know, the cosmos have said, actually that passport no longer gets you all those things it would have. Um, and so, and in, in 2007, it was, uh, time to move back here and everything lined up. Well, it was kind of crazy. And, uh, and that's when I moved here. There's an album that I'm wondering where it fits into this, and that's Foundations by Jody Prosnick Quartet. The way it fits in is interesting because, um, you know, I never, I never lost that connection with with Jody and and with Tilden and Jesse, um, you know, because finally that's the other three people on that CD. Um, and Jody would try to get me out here, even though I was all the way over in England. She'd she'd sort of pull some levers and try to get Corey to help pay for the flight and bring me out. So I played at the cellar um, in in the early days, and that happened. I I can't remember how many times I came over, but that's when I met Corey. And so there was sort of this 
this sort of welcome wagon growing here, thanks to Jody getting me out here and, and introducing me to Corey. So um, foundations happened, I believe, when I still lived in England, and it was about, I don't know, 2006, maybe, if I had to guess, because I don't think I was back. So we recorded that album, and then I went back to England, and then, you know, shortly after I moved moved here, and we gigged a lot, um, gigged that music a lot. Um, so that's where that CD fell in. And a fun story was uh, about that recording was the day before we were recording on Monday at, I think it was little mountain sound, which is gone now. Um, but um, I dropped my, my Selmer uh, at Jody and Tilden's on the Sunday, or maybe it was on the Saturday at the rehearsal. And I was like, Oh no, I just dropped my horn in a soft case. So I had to like desperately find a repairman and Terry Dean who lived here at the time. It was a Sunday and, he he later told me he had to take my tenor out to the curb and basically curb stomp it to straighten the body. And he told me this, you know, much after, but he repaired the horn just in time to do the session. Um, and uh, that recording went really well. It was crazy. We just went in and boom, just did it. And it, to this day, I just saw Margaret Gallagher on um, Facebook was commenting that BC Ferries was playing it the other day. And, and they said, oh, yes, we play this all the time. And we it just calms us down. We love this music. And this is like 14 years later, right? So it's just kind of crazy. And if you talk to Corey, uh, Corey Weeds, um, he, he, does, he says that album still plays a lot and still sells a lot. So it's one of the more popular titles on that, on that label. Some special chemistry there, some old friends. Stone Cold Classic for me personally is RB's line. Oh yeah, that's a great tune. Yeah, it's a neat lineage there when when um, Jody introduces it because um, Tilden studied with Ray Downs, and Ray Downs wrote that for Ray Brown. Um, you know, and then that's how Tilden knew the tune, gave it to Jody. So because um, Ray Downs was a he's a classic Montreal figure. Um, I, th I believe Ray studied with Oscar Peterson's sister. I could be wrong, but I think that's the, the history there. Okay, so how do we get from here to your first album as a leader, which I believe is Blow Up with Seller? Yeah, that's it's kind of an organic, organic connection post-Foundations. So, um, And thanks to Corey for tying my crazy strings together because, you know, the way you frame this is, you know, you're sort of talking about the Montreal years and the England years and then coming here. Well, when um, the when I moved here, Corey set up three nights. Uh, I think it was three. Yeah, three nights at the cellar, the old cellar. He brought out Kevin Dean and Andre White, two of the really strong figures from our formative years in Montreal. And by having, um, you know, by having Jesse on that record and Jody, it was a bit of a reunion, that whole that whole gig. Um you know, unfortunately, Tilden got left out of that scenario because Andre was playing piano. But um, it was really like a Montreal-Vancouver um, connection. And also, I felt it like a bit of a homecoming just it was because uh, it just fit like a glove to come back to Canada and get to play with with those people. So we did three nights and um, everybody played their butts off and uh, and and that resulted in that recording. And I do think that playing live is my favorite um and blow up was a three night live session and then my next record straight up uh was also in a sense live because we recorded at the cellar during the day with two or three people sitting around so it wasn't like a studio isolated process and then 
New York afternoon done in in New York that was for a live audience. So again, it was really not the studio setup. So maybe this is a question that's pretty specific to you. I don't know how many other people would be in the game to give an answer to this, but how would you contrast these two wonderful rhythm sections that you played with? One, the Mike Ledun trio on Straight Up, and two, Rini Rosnes, Peter Washington, and Lewis Nash on New York Afternoon. Well, I'd have to say, I mean, if I'm going to do an A-B and connect, I, I find them the impact those people had on me, there's actually quite a similarity in taking those two trios. And that is, it's what we would call a turnkey operation in that I show up and, and those three people are so used to playing with each other that it was an absolute pleasure to just be plugged into that. And I didn't really have to say, oh, well, I'd really like you to do this and this. I mean, of course they're open to suggestion, but they do what they do and they're just master musicians so i was just able to tap into that um and so for the first session straight up which uh was as i said was done at the cellar mike ladon had actually just done a trio gig there for the previous three nights and so the the steinway was you know everything was in place and then i just was added to that which this here's an aside is if you listen to um uh, cannibal adderley at the jazz workshop I can't remember if the album's called Live at the Jazz Workshop. I think it might be. But one of my favorite records of all times is um, is the Monday night when Cannibal, the band was off, and Barry Harris got to uh, record on his night off. Same band, you know, Cannonball's rhythm section. So Sam Jones and Lewis Hayes and, and Barry Harris, Live at the Jazz Workshop. That's a desert island record for me. And so I... I'm not saying my record's like that, but it was the same setup where they'd just done the gig and there's the setup, just show up the next day. Oh, and we're going to add Steve to the mix. So, um, so Mike, that was a trip because those guys, they're animals. I mean, I just, I remember if you listen to that record, I mean that in a loving way, of course, and I'll explain, is that I remember I was playing a lot of Barbados at the time, Charlie Parker's Blues Head. And I said, yeah, let's do Barbados. Yeah, you know, start with the kind of Calypso kind of beginning. And and then if you listen to that record, as soon as I'm done the head, that trio with John Weber and, and Joe Farnsworth and Mike Ladon, they just go boom. And they just go straight into this feel that's more kind of McCoy. Like we fast forward about 20 years and all of a sudden they're like, whoa, this vibe is so heavy. And I'm just, you can, I hope people listening to that album can hear how much fun I'm having because the force, the swing of this, like these three animals on the rhythm section, just they're like, yeah, are you ready to swing like this hard? Um, so it's pretty comical. I still chuckle when I hear that. Um, and then playing with Rini, I have probably more respect for Rini Rosnas than any living jazz musician. And I've always sort of followed her career because um She's born in Regina. I'm from Regina. She was raised in North Van. And we hear, you know, you hear the stories how Bob uh, Rebliati got her into jazz and everyone sort of heard the Rini stories. I guess I, even back then it was, it was really cool to me having that Canadian connection. It was super cool that she was a woman in jazz. Um, that's obviously like I remember in the 80s thinking that was super cool. Um, 
I, because I went to this jazz camp out at Fort San near Regina and um, there was a bassist named Marlene Rosenberg and she was playing bass. And I thought, that's so amazing, a female bass player. Um, it turns out both Marlene and Rini had played with Joe in the 80s and, and when he was playing at one point with a, with an all-female rhythm section. And so I'd always followed Rini and just thought she was so cool. And I got her first, um, actually got her second album for the moment, which had Joe Henderson on it. Um, her first album is a self-titled album, I believe, on Blue Note. But um, I'd always sort of followed Rini and just thought, wow, she's she's incredible. Like, she's really amazing. So then in 1991, I saw J.J. Johnson at the Spectrum in Montreal. Rini stole the show. She stole. Whenever Rini would take a solo, the whole audience was like, well, like she literally stole the show. The whole band was amazing, but she stole the show. Then I was in Cork in the 90s at one point in Ireland, and I got to see Rini play there. Again, every time she'd play a solo, she'd steal the show. When I saw Rini with the SF Collective at Chan Center here in Vancouver with Joe Lovano, all these superstars, Rini stole the show. She just has this thing like, whoa, the, yeah, she's just capable of, well, doing it all really. So I was really grateful that they even agreed to play with me, but then I can't tell you how classy they were. I showed up and, um, this was in the Unity Center. It was supposed to be at the Steinway House, but they got booted out of their... The Steinway House got basically locked out, like the landlord. Something happened with that business, shut it down, like on the eve of our recording, practically. So they took a piano and were able to bring it next door to the church, to the Unity Center. And um, so recording saved. So I get there, and they were all just super cool. And I remember in the warm-up, can you imagine Lewis Nash... You just meet Lewis and you're like, oh, okay, let's try this tune. And right out of the gates, he was playing the drums with so much athleticism that I thought, like, dude, we're not recording. This is just the warm up. But oh my God, like he doesn't phone it in. It's just, oh, <laughs> welcome, to, <laughs> welcome to New York, you know? Um, and Lewis was just a powerhouse and Peter was just amazing. And I'd seen all these people live. I knew these people. But to, again, like the Lee Konis lesson, to be part of it, it was just too much for me. It was like a trip. Like, wait, I'm, I'm still feeling like a fan. I'm playing and my music is with yours and we're actually playing together. What? <laughs> you know, that, that's such a trip, which I felt way more with these three than the Mike Ladon trio. For whatever reason, I, I was a little bit more starstruck, maybe because I'd been following Rini for, for so many years. Um, and she was super kind and helped me with, um, some of the charts, you know, she said, oh, she's a big fan of Brazilian music too. So there's a tune on there uh, written by Chico Buarque called Beatriz. And she knew it. She knew the intro. And she said, oh, that melody, yeah, that one note you're playing is wrong. Um, you got to change that one note. And I thought, oh, really? Yeah, okay. Let me, yeah, okay. You know, she's so inside the music that she'll she'll correct you. And I'll graciously say, well, like, thanks, Rini. Um so that was a great record, but and it's it written up in the liner notes. It tells the story about how across the street, there's this massive skyscraper going in and this New York union crew is like jackhammering and making all this noise. And the unity center has these glass doors that aren't soundproof. Um, you know, it's not a recording studio. So <clears throat> pardon me. So, um, so here we're recording and we're hearing this this low sort of wavering hum and that's like a subsonic kind of jackhammering that's coming through the earth like under the street and um it just wasn't going to fly we couldn't we couldn't record i couldn't really hear it but then it turns out it was really embedding itself on the on the tape on the uh, um well 
on the digital tape. So we went over and I can't remember if Corey went to talk to them or someone went over. I like to imagine it's Corey because that's fun to think Corey going to a union boss and going like, hey, you guys going to be much longer? <laughs> and the guy's like, what's it to you? And I think it was a maybe a Friday afternoon. So I think we only had Rini's trio book till five. And um, and we started recording at about 4.40. And we went till six. And we almost went straight through. And Rini was calling at home and making sure like childcare was all sorted out with her um, commitments. And, and Lewis was cool. And miraculously, none of those people had gigs that night, which is crazy because they're three of the busiest musicians in New York. Um, so they were all super cool. They knew like, well, man, we've come all this way. we got to make a record. And I have to say that in about an hour 30, we made all the, and it wasn't like, oh, I really wish, you know, we could keep going. It was, it was cool. We just put it down. Um, and Peter Washington had to sight read this tune I wrote, which I'm sure, you know, it would have been great to have another take, but he just read it, you know, read it, a uh, big melody in D flat based on um, Savoy. And just basically played all all eighth notes and triplets the whole time. Um, yeah, amazing. So, just a bit of background about those two dates. You know, uh, they're very different. Uh, it was neat having an audience, and the audience was watching us work our way through this problem of not being able to record. And they were super patient. At one point, I think Corey brought in a crate of wine and some food for the audience because there was like his New York with Weeds tour was sitting there getting hot. You know, uh, it was warm. It was really warm in there. <laughs> so anyway, that's New York afternoon. And, and I'm, I'm super happy with that record. It's, it reminds me of foundations in, in um, Jody Prosnick's record in, in that people keep saying, Oh, you know, that's just a really nice record. And I have enough detachment from it because I was so glad to do that record. I don't, I almost don't take the compliment myself. I just share that love for that album with them because I was playing with Rini Rosnes. Peter Washington and Lewis Nash. And I say, yes, it was such a great record. I'm glad you enjoy it. And I love it too. Whereas, um, you know, I, I know, I don't know if you know what I mean, Will, but I'm basically like able to, to really love that CD because I'm not listening to it thinking, how did I do? I, how's my playing? I'm more listening to it going, this is Rini Rosnes, Peter Washington, Lewis Nash. Oh my God. Yeah. So that was fun. I kind of feel like um, talking about, the cap thing a little bit if if you wanted to go that yeah, way that's definitely where i was going because that's where i encountered you yeah yeah i mean it's, it's funny how these things all go for full circle you know and we make these connections and then re-encounter these uh students that are doing great things out there in the real world and um i guess i'm i'm really excited about what's happening at cap right now and not to be sort of a um you know walking billboard for a program but um, we did hire Kofi Gablonio, um, our Ghanaian uh, friend, who um, is just, I don't know, what, what can I say about Kofi? But we, we began our association because of Jared Burroughs, the former coordinator, Jared Burroughs, knowing, knowing Kofi and getting to know Kofi and bringing him in years ago, maybe seven years ago at CAP and doing fundraisers for, um, for Kofi School in Ghana and beginning that association and then bringing Kofi in as artist in residence and and now this year we were able to bring them on to faculty so i think it's cool that your program's called rhythm changes because rhythm is basically my new uh i'm kind of a, like an evangelical um in just how important i think rhythm is in teaching jazz and we've had it all um 
well, I don't want to say we've had it backwards. It, 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 it is as it has been, but now if we can look at how to make jazz education better, I think that the answers are in the rhythm and the roots of this music, honoring the roots and the creators of this music and, and pointing to rhythm as something we can try to codify in the sense of, can we at least put this in the, in the curriculum and not just say, and the rhythm part, well, listen to some jazz records and, and do all the scales and all the harmony and the rhythm will just take care of itself. Um, so, so I'm pretty excited about the Kofi hire just because everything that people take with Kofi, every, every class they take with him, they're just lit up. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of mental health, um, you know, a lot of focus on mental health over the last maybe five to 10 years and more and more every day. And, I have had some students that were too tired to go to the Kofi session, his weekly workshop. And I sort of forced them. I said, no, you have to go. And afterwards, it's like medicine. And they're just like, oh, thank you so much for making me go. I feel so happy. Like, it's such an embodied, joyous experience that we're all beginners, you know, relatively. Um, there's so much to know about rhythm and, and Ghana and, and West African uh, rhythms so that people that do that they're just pumped and that's the great unifier is that we're all like when i not to bounce around but in the mid-90s i went to banff and hugh fraser had uh abraham adzenia come from the university of pittsburgh i believe and um which i believe is the school that kofi ended up um coming to africa to pittsburgh as well after abraham adzenia's time but anyway we started this month-long banff thing with this week of african dance and and drumming and we were all like no man i want to show everyone how good i am at saxophone and it, it's the great equalizer where everyone had to do the the thing for a week and after that we had this final concert on the saturday night and i think we were up for 40 hours afterwards completely sober but just buzzing with the joy and that is sort of the magic of like tapping into this thing and so so that's what i'm super pumped about with having kofi at a cap is just that that rhythmic thing that lifts people up and also figuring out a way to create enough space for Kofi, not just to plug him into our curriculum, but just set him, you know, give him space to say, well, what, what would you do with this, with this space? If we can create enough for you, you know, um, and maybe even make an opening for even more focus in that area, you know, beyond what Kofi brings. So that's where we're heading. Rhythm is the great equalizer. Oh man. Love it. Isn't it? It's and I'm such a baby when it comes to rhythm that it's like learning a new instrument or something. You feel like, wow, it's all knowledge. I don't know anything. And so it's pretty exciting. I have a practice pad and I bought some drumsticks and I'm I'm starting to give it its proper focus. But you know, Michael Brecker, Dave Liebman, Joe Lovano, all these sax heroes of mine, they all play well, Coltrane, they all play drums. And I don't you know, they're all, you know, different level of drummer, but the fact is they care enough about rhythm to to pursue that so i'm super pumped about maybe looking for even more opportunities at cap to to focus on rhythm because that's not how i learned at mcgill i'm not knocking mcgill at all i had an absolutely amazing time so much so that i went again you know i went and did my master's there but the rhythm was sort of left for us to discover just from the records it wasn't really embedded because of the academia and the history of how we learn jazz in in these institutions the priorities and the european focus Rhythm was like, well, I don't know. I mean, just listen to jazz and you'll figure that part out. But aren't you going to try to put it in the curriculum? <laughs> you know, it's just 
funny, it's just a priority thing. So I think we're all working to codify, not codify, but basically um, prioritize rhythm and, and work its way into the curriculum. So I don't know. I'm pretty pumped about it. I don't know if if it's uh, if it's that obvious to people just hearing about it, but when you taste, like when you get a sample of these workshops with Kofi, they're so joyous. Um, Will, did you go to the tribute to Africa? It's sort of a, a silly name, you know, to tribute a whole continent, but but we had this um, concert with the Capilano faculty about three years ago called Tribute to Africa, and Kofi was involved um, big in a big way. You know what? I missed it, but I do remember that Kofi was one of the first big events and guests that happened immediately after I dropped out. So it was still on my radar that oh. he was coming back then in 2014. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's it's coming on seven years now. Well, we did this tribute to Africa and it, and it, it could have been called tribute to Ghana, but of course there was actually some, some other musics of other areas represented as well. Um, but we did this one tune and I was on the mic and we're standing around and it was funny. This is, uh, this is a funny story because I play saxophone. It's got a lot of cheesy associations and I come from learning it in the eighties when there was all these sax solos. So it's about time for my Calypso kind of St. Thomas vibe and it's time for the sax solo and something overcame me and I knew there's no way I can play the saxophone solo into this mic. I have to go out into the audience and run up and down the stairs and it sounds like something Mindy Bear or like some great, you know, not knocking these players that are more kind of physical, um, but I would just never do that, you know, and so something overcame me. I thought, no, no, no. I have to walk up and down the stairs and it's like graded seating. And I went out and I played as loud as I could, like no microphone. And the whole audience stood up from that point in the concert and stayed standing for the remainder of the concert. Like I just kind of lit a spark and it wasn't even me. It was like the music lit a spark under, under me. And I thought, this is not your typical stand around gig. Like this is joy. And, and that's what I'm talking about. And it wasn't, it actually wasn't cheesy. It was like, people were like, thanks for the invitation to show that we love this music. So everyone started moving and dancing and it just kept going for the show. So that, that told me like, wow, I'm tapping into something really powerful here. That's going to make me some, do something so out of my comfort zone. You know what I mean? Can you imagine it? Like the Blue Shore Theater where people just sit nice, polite North Band crowds and, you know. Wow. <laughs> it was crazy. Like, the, I, what's Steve doing going up and down these stairs like a Clarence Clemens solo with Bruce Springsteen? But, you know, and I love Clarence Clemens uh, dearly. But that, it was just like, who's making me do this? What's going on? <laughs> so, yeah, loving, loving the rhythm focus up there right now. And we got a full roster of students through COVID. You know, people are coming. I'm pumped. Yeah, I, I think I want to go out with this because it relates to... Uh, joy in a audience setting and i heard this somewhere when i was prepping and it's a moment on a famous jazz album that we both love and it's about two minutes in to miles davis's recording of stella by starlight on the album my funny valentine and somebody just yells into the silence yeah oh did you find out who that was well, I never got to the bottom of it. And I feel like we haven't asked everyone in jazz. Like we should be asking, um, you know, some of the biggest historians. We should ask Mike Ledon who, who that is. But it, it's one of my favorite moments. Some people say it's Dizzy Gillespie. And I thought that Mohammed Al-Kabir 
in uh, Trump, a great trombonist in Montreal. I thought he said that was his dad. Um, you know, there's all these people claiming to to have a connection with who that was. I like the story that it's Dizzy because when I went back and replayed it about ten times, I thought that could be Dizzy's voice, and wouldn't that be funny? Because that's such a storied recording, um, you know, in Miles's book when he says, I think he mentions like that it's a charity and they're not getting paid right as they're going to go out. Tony Williams is really trying to push the music forward and may not be a fan of George Coleman's playing. There might be that sort of dynamic in the band. Yet the results are a, an, an album that many of us hold as like our top, one of our top records of all times. So, yeah, I was expecting you, Will, on Friday night to go, <laughs> I thought about it, believe me. Well, you know, if you're in the audience, you can aspire to be that person. It seems we all want to be that person. We're all claiming it. And if you're on stage, we can aspire to be you getting out from behind the mic and walking through the crowd. <laughs> oh, totally. That's yeah. And it has to be it has to happen at the right time. You almost lose control and something else is pulling you, you know. So follow your muse. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Will. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Rhythm Changes podcast. Follow the feed wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star review if you can. Our website is rhythmchanges.ca. Rhythm Changes is a churn-off music production, and this podcast is recorded and edited by me, William Chernoff. Copyright 2021, Chernoff Music.